Welcome to Friendly Words, the sermon podcast of Pratt Friends Church in Pratt, Kansas. The message you're about to hear was originally preached at Pratt Friends Church on Sunday, June 27, 2021. It focuses on Jesus' response to two questions posed to him concerning divorce and how to gain eternal life. The message to all who will listen is following Jesus' way is not always easy, and salvation is by grace, not by works. Now, here is Pastor Mike Neifert. Let's pray together. God, thank you that uh, you want us to hear your voice. And so we come to your word ready to listen, and I pray that your Holy Spirit would do all that you desire to do, that your purpose for your word would be accomplished in this place today. And we pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. So about this time of year, way back in 1988, I was interviewing with churches, hoping one of them would take an inexperienced kid straight out of Bible college on as their pastor. Four churches invited Susan and I to come for interviews, Gardner Friends Church in Kansas, Mount Gilead Friends Church in Ohio, Arba Friends Church in Indiana, and Winchester Friends also in Indiana. We ended up at Arba Friends Church in part because Mount Gilead wanted five years of experience. I didn't have any. And Winchester wasn't really looking for a youth pastor. You see, the pastor just brought me in for an interview without telling the board. Awkward. Gardner didn't call us back. Ten years later, in the spring of 1998, I was talking with churches again. I interviewed in person at Honey Creek New Providence Friends Church in Iowa, Argonia Friends Church in Kansas, and Booker Friends Church in Texas. We talked on the phone with Midway Friends Church in California. All but Midway asked me to come as their next pastor. Time alone with God in prayer led me and my family to accept the invitation to Argonia Friends Church. Fast forward 13 years to 2011, I'm seeking God's direction again. We interview with one church, this one. There's another candidate talking with you at the same time. I believe he was from California. I don't remember for sure. My initial conversation with you takes place over Skype. That was a first. I come out and preach once. As you're weighing the options, the guy from California or wherever withdraws his candidacy and you're stuck with me. On June 28, 2011, we pulled into Pratt in our moving van, and many of you here helped us unload our stuff, and I'm sure glad that God brought us together. Of all the questions asked during those nine or so in-person or over-the-phone interviews I participated in during those three seasons of transition, do you know how many I can recall? About four. Everything else was pretty standard. It's the things that are unusual that stand out. And so I can remember about four of them. In Winchester, Indiana, a rather liberal and kind of cantankerous member of the church asked me whether I thought the book of Hebrews held Jesus out as the Son of God. I was fresh out of Bible college and not wise enough to keep my mouth shut, so I tried answering that. A military veteran in Gardner, Kansas, at the Friends Church there, asked me what I thought about members of the Friends Church serving in the military. Someone on Midway's search committee asked if I raised my hands in worship. And during our Skype conversation with you, one of you all asked, were those your kids that just army crawled behind the camera? (laughs) 
all but that last one, I remember, because they were kind of loaded questions. The inquisitive liberal from Winchester didn't think that Jesus was the Son of God. Incidentally, later, I found out that he came to know Christ as his Savior before he died. Isn't that awesome? Jesus got a hold of him, and I'm sure thankful for that. Look forward to meeting him in heaven and saying, yeah, Jesus, Son of God. Anyway, the veteran at Gardner didn't tell me he was ex-military until after I had answered the inquiry. And the hand-raising inquiry posed by Midway Friends was really about discovering my views on the charismatic movement. I guess they thought it that I raised my hands and worshipped that the next thing I was going to do was be speaking in tongues on the first Sunday I was there. I don't know. These three questions were memorable exactly because of their loaded nature, the potential for missteps on my part as I answered, and for offense on the questioner's part was pretty great. That potential was there. I think I negotiated each situation well enough, but I'll never know, I guess. I didn't end up at any of those three churches that these probes came from. For those of you who weren't here for the interview that we had, the answer to the question about army crawling kids in the background was yes, those were my kids. Anyway, before we begin our examination of Matthew 19 this morning, let me suggest a loaded question which would make any preacher hem and haw a bit. Here's the question. When would you like to preach about divorce and remarriage? The honest answer to that question is, I would never like to preach on divorce and remarriage. It's uncomfortable for me and for half the people in the congregation, people who are listening in online. Divorce and remarriage is so prevalent in our society and even in the church that the Bible's words on the subject, Jesus' words, are bound to offend at least a few when we read them out loud. And then you want me to go beyond that and apply what we hear to today. When would I like to preach about divorce and remarriage? If I had my own comfortable fleshly ways, never. When will I? When God says to or when a series brings it up. So here we are in Matthew chapter 19. As you probably guessed by now, we're going to be talking about divorce and remarriage, at least as we start. In this chapter, Jesus speaks plainly about the issue of divorce and remarriage. He does so because a loaded question is posed to him by the Pharisees who want to see him stumble publicly. Their motives are at best questionable. And if you remember from a few weeks ago, any time in that culture that a question was asked in public of a teacher, it was not because you really wanted to know the answer, but because you were trying to trap them or trying to make yourself look better than them. So everybody take a deep breath. And prepare for what Jesus says in response to the loaded question posed to him about divorce and remarriage in Matthew chapter 19. Follow along as I read. I'm going to read verses 1 to 12 as we get going. When Jesus had finished saying these things, he left Galilee and went into the region of Judea on the other side of the Jordan. Large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. Some Pharisees came to him to test him. They asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the creator made them male and female and said, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Why then, they asked, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? 
Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard, but it was not this way from the beginning. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. The disciples said to him, if this is the situation between a husband and a wife, it's better not to marry. Jesus replied, not everyone can accept this word, but only those to whom it has been given. For there are eunuchs who were born that way, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by others, and there are those who choose to live like eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. The one who can accept this should accept it. What you and I, centuries removed from this situation, might not know is that there was a raging debate going on in Israel about this issue. Some teachers believed that you could divorce a woman for any reason imaginable. She burns your toast, she's toast. Others held a more conservative view. They believed that only infidelity justified the severing of those marital ties. So this question of divorce and remarriage put to Jesus was an even more loaded question than any of us might imagine. There were likely folks from both sides of the aisle among the bystanders in the crowd that day. Everybody heard the question, and they leaned in to hear what Jesus was going to say. With whom would he side? Which view would he favor? Jesus starts his answer with an appeal to a time before sin marred relationships. In the beginning, God made a man and a woman, and when they came together, it was for life. They were one flesh. They could not be separated. Truthfully, before sin, they weren't looking for an out. To the crowd around him on this particular day, he says, this is the way it was and the way that it should still be. Let me ask you this. Isn't this what everyone who marries wants? Every bride on her wedding day imagines a lifelong relationship with a man who's holding her hand. Every groom dreams of a till-death-do-us-part marriage to the woman into whose eyes he is gazing lovingly. The guests at every wedding want the couple reciting vows before them to succeed at life together. The as-it-was-in-the-beginning ideal that Jesus puts forth is still the ideal. Of all the things that sin messed up, marriage for a lifetime is one of the saddest casualties. I grieve every single time I hear of a couple who breaks their one flesh bond. Every marriage which ends in divorce is heartbreaking. I know abuse and lies and manipulation are unbearable, but still the dissolution of a relationship which began with so much hope, it ought to be gut-wrenching, and it is. God, help us to guard our marriages. Those of you who are married, guard them. Help us to be gracious and merciful and loving toward one another. When the Pharisees hear Jesus' words, they ask this clarifying question, as loaded as the first one. If this is true, why does the law that God gave to the people through Moses, why did it permit divorce? Perfect follow-up, right? actually kind of a fair question. It has just as much potential, though, to trip Jesus up as that original query. How does Jesus handle it? He speaks truth. God made provision for divorce because hearts become hard toward others. It was not his plan from the beginning, but an after-sin ruined things by far second-best option. That's what this is. 
It was a concession made to protect the vulnerable in society, women who could in that society do little for themselves if they were simply put aside for another without legal separation, which allowed for them to get remarried. So Jesus comes down firmly on the side of those who said that divorce was means for dealing solely with infidelity in that one flesh relationship of marriage. He seems to say that adultery is the only legitimate grounds for severing ties which were meant to bind a couple together in love for a lifetime. Do his words make us uncomfortable? Of course they do. They fly in the face of the decisions that we made as a country about how and when and for what reasons marriage vows can be trashed. Our no-fault rules are stunningly like the more liberal any and every reason standard that some held in Jesus' day and that Jesus rejects. Now, I'm fairly certain someone hearing me has been through a divorce for reasons other than infidelity. Perhaps you or a friend or a relative have severed ties with your first or second or third spouse and remarried once or twice or thrice. What do you do with Jesus' words? First, I believe that all of us who are believers must acknowledge the wisdom and goodness of God's best way. The ideal is actually an ideal because it is ideal. Getting married and staying married till death do you part is better than any other option. Can we agree on that? In general, that's true. Having said that and knowing that some marriages have been dissolved and new bonds formed, I think Jesus would offer grace and encourage fidelity for the rest of your days to your current spouse. Do you need to seek God's forgiveness for past actions? I can't make that judgment for you, but I encourage you to go to God and ask him. I trust that the Holy Spirit will convince you one way or the other and guide you if that's what you need to do. And I'm sure that if you follow his directions, you will find his healing and his peace and his forgiveness. That's true for any sin, isn't it? Yeah. Is what Jesus says radically different than what the world teaches? It is. It was radically different than what the teachers of his day taught. The disciples were stunned by their master's words, and their response in verse 10 is over the top. They said, if this is the situation between a husband and wife, it's better not to marry. That's what they thought. And Jesus acknowledges what he said is difficult, and he encourages those who will listen to give themselves wholly to God's will for their lives, whether that includes marriage or a single life. He even suggests that celibacy might be the path for some. If it is, he urges those so-called to give their all to the kingdom as they follow God's way for them. And he does that for all of us, whether we're married or not. Take up your cross, deny yourself, follow me. Having deflected those loaded questions thrown at him by the rancorous Pharisees, the scene shifts. Listen to what verses 13, 14, and 15 bring us. Then people brought little children to Jesus for him to place his hands on them and pray for them. But the disciples rebuked them. Jesus said, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. When he had placed his hands on them, he went on from there. Now this is kind of a strange thing to separate two important adult level discussions. And we're gonna see the second discussion in a moment. The 12 must have thought it was not the time or the place for kids to show up, and so they try to shoo these tiny people away. Not now, moms. Can't you see that Jesus is busy answering serious questions, smacking down his rivals? Jesus rebukes his security detail. 
He's got time for every kid who's been brought to him, the adults with their never-ending string of questions and their trapping ways can just wait. Blessing little ones matters more than answering the next grown-up question. It's true always, not just for Jesus, but for his followers as well. Because the kingdom of heaven belongs to those who are like little children, who look to their father for everything. You get this, don't you? Kids matter to God. We talked about this last week. Remember the millstone hanging around your neck and throwing you into the depths of the sea to drown? It's better to have that happen than it would be for you to mislead a small child or a believer. Kids ought to matter to us, always. God help us to give the young ones around us the time and attention that they need so that they can know Jesus and follow him. We're ready now to read the next part of Matthew's narrative. Another question is going to be posed to Jesus. At the end of the first one, he went on from there. So this is in a different place, but it's evidently not far removed in time. This is one of the next things that happened. We hear a question posed to Jesus, and we hear his response to it in verses 16 through 26. Matthew 19, starting at verse 16, says, Just then a man came up to Jesus and asked, Teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? Why do you ask me about what is good? Jesus replied, there's only one who is good. If you want to enter life, keep the commandments. Which ones, he inquired. Jesus replied, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony, honor your father and mother, and love your neighbor as yourself. Verse 20, all these I have kept, the young man said, what do I still lack? Jesus answered, if you want to be perfect, go sell your possessions and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sad because he had great wealth. Then Jesus said to his disciples, truly, I tell you, it is hard for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished and asked, who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. So here's another loaded question. What good thing must I do to get eternal life? Is this guy, as it seems, asking about minimum entrance requirements? Is he seeking to know how little he must do to get past the gates of the eternal city of God? There are plenty of people who want the answer to that question. There are plenty who think that they've got the answer, and the answer that they think is true is that they're pretty sure that all it takes is to be a pretty good person. They're pretty sure that they are good enough to suffice. They aren't as bad as some. They're nice most of the time. Why wouldn't God let them in? The guy in front of Jesus seems to have an I'm good enough attitude. When Jesus asks about some of the commands, the man confidently asserts that he's followed them all. But he's not satisfied, is he? He senses that there's something more. And so we ask the second question, what do I still lack? Is this guy admitting that he's not sure of his salvation, even though he thinks he's good enough? 
even though he thinks he has this righteousness because he's followed all these commands, it seems like he's saying that. Can I let you in on a little secret? Salvation is not the possession of those who try to earn it by being good. No one gets in on their own merit. You can't be good enough to deserve heaven. I can't be. You sense that in your heart of hearts, don't you? That none of us are going to measure up when we're before God's throne. Anybody here know of a couple things that they've done wrong? Well, a few years after Jesus' encounter with this rich young man, Paul wrote these words to the church in Ephesus. I have read them over and over and over again because I think they're some of the most important words for us to understand. It's in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 9, that we find these words from Paul, who took the good news of salvation through Jesus to everybody. And this is what he says at the beginning of chapter 2. Ephesians 2, 1 through 9 says this. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the rule of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is a gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Trusting in Jesus, not in your own goodness, not in your own righteousness, not in comparing yourself to other people. Trusting in Jesus is the way to salvation, period. Eternal life is the gift of God that is given by grace to those who do not deserve it, which is every one of us here and everyone who might ever hear this truth. It cannot be earned by being better or missed by being worse. It is only earned by submitting everything to the king of the kingdom. Was this young man completely surrendered to God? It doesn't appear so. He was unwilling to give up his wealth, which it seems mattered more to him than eternal life. The price Jesus suggested was too much, at least in this moment. have to wonder if maybe years later he changed his mind and came to follow. The seeker of the truth, the one who wanted to know the way to life, walked away because he had great wealth and he was unwilling to part with it. As the questioner disappeared into the crowd, Jesus, I imagine with a sigh, said words which astonished his hearers. Verses 23 and 24, truly I tell you, it is hard for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. For years, people had equated accumulation of wealth and flocks and all the stuff of this world had equated that with God's blessing. A rich man was obviously living right or God wouldn't have given him so much. Not so, says Jesus. Taken aback, his disciples asked, who then can be saved? 
Their master's answer, our master's answer, points to the conclusion that Paul came to. It is only by grace that you can be saved. God must save us or we can't be rescued at all. Are you hearing what God says? Are you hearing Jesus? Salvation is by faith in Jesus apart from any good that you might do. You cannot be good enough to get in on your own. You need God's grace, which he offers to those who will trust in him. No matter what your past is full of, it can be wiped clean. So quit trying to get in the back door. There is no back door. Attaining eternal life is impossible without God. Jesus said so. Paul affirms it. All right. Just a few more verses from chapter 19. Let's begin at verse 27 and read through the end of the chapter. Peter answered Jesus, we have left everything to follow you. What then will there be for us? Jesus said to them, truly I tell you, at the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or fields for my sake will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and many who are last will be first. Hear the truth. Giving up everything to follow Jesus, submitting to him, even losing your life for the kingdom's sake, will be worth it in the end. The reward of eternal life and all you will receive in the life after this life, which is real life, will be greater than anything you might gain or keep or hold on to in the here and now. Do you believe this is true? Do you trust Jesus enough to give him everything right now, your life, your wealth, your time, not to gain salvation, but to honor him and so that you might serve him and him alone and point others to him? Loaded questions, I know. Questions that I invite you to consider. In the next few moments, I'm going to give you time in silence to respond to what God said to you. I can't decide how you need to respond, so I'm letting you do it. Will you listen to God and respond to what the Spirit said to you today? Will you? Let's take just a few moments in silence and allow our full attention to be on God and what His Spirit wants to say to us. God, I'm fully convinced that I am no better than anybody else and that I absolutely have to have your grace. That my salvation is not about what I do, but about what Jesus has done. And I know that's true. And I pray, God, that you would convince each person here, every person who's hearing, that that's the truth. And that our faith has to be in Jesus and what he's done on the cross to satisfy your wrath and take away sin so that we might have life. God, I thank you that there's no sin that can separate us from you if we put our faith in Jesus. Nothing in our past that can stop your grace from getting through and your mercy from being given to us. Not divorce, not remarriage, not anything. 
So Father, we put our faith in you. We trust you for what Jesus has provided. We can't save ourselves. It's impossible with us, but with you, it's possible. And we thank you for that. God, if there's any here who have not put their faith in Jesus, I pray that you would speak to them. I pray that you would speak clearly to them so that they might put their faith in him. I'm not their judge, but you are. And so I pray that you would convince them of their need for a savior, that you would rescue them. God, thanks for your word. Thank you that you showed us that following Jesus is worth everything. God, help us to be kind and generous as we go throughout this week and help us to be speakers of good news to lost people, people just like us who need a Savior. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We hope you have been encouraged and challenged by today's sermon. If you want to hear each week's message, be sure to subscribe to Friendly Words in your podcast app. May God bless you as you follow Jesus in the power of the Holy Spirit.